Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You'll need a Bible to follow along. The guys are going to pass some out as they make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll give you one of those. And it's our gift to you. Keep that Bible. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 3. Thanks to many people who made it possible for our young people to sing. The young people themselves, families, thank you for bringing them for all the practices and bringing them today. To Carol for doing her work with them and for Anthony for choreographing all of the movement that had to happen up here. Along with his four roadies. So thanks Jared and Bryce and James and Spencer. You guys did a great job. 1 Corinthians 3 is not a Christmas message. This is not a Christmas message. That's next week. And next week we have only one service. It starts at 10.30, and we'll have a a bit longer worship service, no Sunday school, no Discovering God next week, 10.30, and that will be our Christmas message. Today we're ending a series that we've been in. This is the 12th message for that, and we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. I've observed over the years that many professing Christians have what I call circumstantial holiness. That is, they speak and act in ways that are set apart. That's what holy means. They do that in some circumstances, but not in others. When in situations where there are Christians present, they conform. But when they find themselves outside of that environment, they also find themselves conforming to that new situation. Typical examples would be how one acts at church versus how one might act at work. What's the issue with that? Well, it illustrates that good behavior can simply be going through the motions. That is, doing what's expected, doing what everyone else at the moment is doing. Unless it goes deeper, unless it's motivated by something better than our transient circumstances, then our words and our actions will simply reflect whatever situation we happen to be in. Unless there is a transformation of the heart, then that will be our pattern because, as you've heard me say over the years, you can change your address, but you take the same heart with you. A changed heart, on the other hand, makes a difference wherever you are and whatever the circumstances. It will provide a radically different perspective, a radically different perspective on yourself, on others, on your environment, Because as we were reminded last week, the heart is truly the heart of the matter. In scripture, in fact, the heart is the control center of the person, including our thinking. And so the Bible says, as a man thinks within himself, so is he. And so important is this issue of how we think then that we're told to protect our minds above all else. Guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And so, friends, failure to think about our thinking, think about our thinking, will mean that by default, we will absorb the thinking of the world. And that's precisely what happened for the church in Corinth. A divisive culture had developed in that church, owing to their worldly thinking about all sorts of matters, including what we saw last week, how they evaluated leaders, which stemmed from how they saw people in general. Their disunity manifested itself in a number of ways, including their penchant for proudly associating themselves with personalities. And so verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, 
Since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? These divisions based on worldly rather than holy thinking extended even to taking one another to court. Says a few chapters over, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Now, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, identifies the root issue of all of this as pride. That is a a focus on self and what self likes and what self wants that inevitably results in disharmony. And so he says in verse 21 of chapter 3, No more boasting. And then in chapter 4 and verse 7, he asks, why do you boast? You see, Paul has this quaint idea that our problem is thinking too highly of ourselves. And yet in our culture, that has been reversed so that the root of all evil is a lack of self-esteem, thinking too low of ourselves. Several years ago, an article in the New York Times said that the mental health professions were starting to question that consensus. It said it it has not been much disputed until recently that high self-esteem, defined quite simply as liking yourself a lot, holding a positive opinion of your actions and capacities is essential to well-being and that its opposite is responsible for crime and substance abuse and prostitution and murder and rape and even terrorism. Thousands of papers in psychiatric and social science literature suggest this. Papers with names like Characteristics of Abusive Parents, A Look at Self-Esteem. And Low Adolescent Self-Esteem Leads to Multiple Interpersonal Problems. Another article entitled The Anatomy of Terrorism found that hijackers and suicide bombers suffer from feelings of worthlessness and that their violent acts are desperate attempts to bring some inner flair to a flat mindscape. The writer of that New York Times article said that it's going to take years to change people's view that low self-esteem is the reason why there is drug addiction, the reason why there's crime, wife beating, and so forth. The reason that it's so hard to shake that is because it is, in fact, very attractive. You see, you don't have to make any moral judgments in order to deal with society's problems if you take that approach. All you have to do is support people and build them up. In traditional cultures, the way you dealt with these problems was you clamped down on people and convicted them and called them bad. What's intriguing about the passage we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians is that it gives us an approach to self-regard, an approach to the self, and a way of seeing ourselves that's different from both the traditional approach and what we see in contemporary culture. Today is our 12th and final message in our series, What's God Got to Do With It? Today we're going to see what God has to do with our thinking about ourselves, how the gospel transforms our view of ourselves, and we'll see everything else differently as a result. So let's ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Father, here we are before you. We have your word in front of us. We ask you to instruct us. Instruct us now, Lord, about what you say, about how we should think about our thinking. In particular, how we should think about ourselves. And to see ourselves in light of the glorious gospel 
that grants us a new identity. As a result, may we in turn see everything else accurately from your perspective. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Since I can't improve on Tim Keller's handling of the passage we're going to look at, as contained in a little book that I've recommended to you a few times, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, I'm taking much of what I'm going to say today from there. In chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul says, if you allow the instruction that he's given at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, if you'll follow that, then you will, verse 6 of chapter 4, you will not be puffed up. Now, the word that's translated puffed up is an unusual one. It's used six times in this particular book of 1 Corinthians. It's used an additional time in Colossians 2, another of Paul's letters. The word literally means to be overinflated, to be swollen, distended beyond proper size. It's related to the word for a bellows. It's very evocative. It brings to mind a rather painful image of an organ in the human body, an organ that's distended because so much air has been pumped into it. So much air that it's overinflated and ready to burst. It's swollen, it's inflamed, and extended past its proper size. It's an image that communicates a number of things about our self-centered pride in the way we think about ourselves. So I have for you in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to look at it. But this word that's translated puffed up is an image that communicates a number of things about our self-centered pride. How we, I say, first of all, naturally view ourselves. Now, when we talk about something being natural, many automatically conclude that it must be okay. If it's natural, then what could be wrong with it? I hear parents often say this. It's only natural for a kid to fill in the blank. And if that, and then that ends the discussion in their mind. Whether what that kid wants to do or is good or bad isn't much of a question. Or it's natural for a man to want to feel, fill in the blank. So it must be okay for him to demand it of his spouse and his children, right? Well, remember this, friends. Saying something is natural does not mean it's okay from a biblical perspective. Because remember, we are all born with a sin nature. So naturally is very often not good. Or it's taken something that should be good and distorting it. Our natural view of ourselves is tainted by self-centeredness that comes from our sin nature. And so I say in the outline, our natural view of ourselves is shallow. There's an emptiness at the center of human pride. The pride that's puffed up and overinflated has nothing at its center. Natural human pride is built on something besides God. And so our ego searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, a sense of purpose, and it builds itself on that. But if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it's always going to be too small. It's going to rattle around. And so the first thing about the way we naturally view ourselves is that it is shallow. But secondly, it's not only shallow, it's painful. Keller asks, have you ever thought about the fact that most often you don't notice your body until there's something wrong with it? 
When we're walking around, we're not usually thinking about how fantastic our toes are or how brilliantly our elbows are working. We only think like that if there had previously been something wrong with them. That is, because of the parts of our body only draw attention to themselves if there's something wrong with them, the ego often hurts. That is, because it has something incredibly wrong with it. Something unbelievably wrong with it. It's always drawing attention to itself. Doing so every single day. It's always making us think about how we look and how we're treated. People sometimes say my feelings were hurt, but really feelings can't be hurt. It's the ego that hurts. My sense of self, my identity, my feelings are fine. It's my pride that hurts. Walking around doesn't hurt my toes unless there's something already wrong with those toes. My pride would not hurt, hear this, unless there was something already terribly wrong with it. It's very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. And that's because there's something wrong with our pride. There's something wrong with our identity. Something wrong with our sense of self. It's never happy, always drawing attention to itself. And so our natural view of ourselves is shallow. It's painful because it's like a bloated stomach that's distended. And thirdly, our natural view of ourselves is active. Notice in verse 6 of chapter 4 that there is no period after the phrase puffed up. It says, if you follow these instructions, you will not be puffed up, but then goes on to say you'll stop, quote, being a follower of one of us over against the other. That is, you will not compare one of us against another. And that's the very essence of what it means to have a natural but sinful human pride. The way normal human pride tries to fill its emptiness and deal with its discomfort is by comparing itself to other people. All the time. In his famous chapter on pride in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis points out that pride is by nature competitive. And it's competitiveness that's at the very heart of pride. He said this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. (laughs) We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer. And cleverer and better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. In other words, we're only proud of being more successful and more intelligent and more good looking than the next person. And when we're in the presence of someone who's more successful, intelligent and good looking than we are, we lose all pleasure in what we had. And that's because we really had no pleasure in it to begin with. We were proud of it. As Lewis says, pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person. Pride is the pleasure of being more than the next person. And all of the time, our pride has us doing all kinds of things, not for the pleasure of doing it, but because we're trying to put together an impressive resume. By comparing ourselves to other people and trying to make ourselves look better than others, we are boasting trying to recommend ourselves, trying to create a self-esteem resume because we're desperate to fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. The ego is very active. 
active all the time. And lastly, as well as being shallow, painful, and active, our pride is fragile. That is because anything that's overinflated is always in imminent danger of being deflated. <laughs> like an overinflated balloon. If we're puffed up by air, not filled up with something solid, then to be overinflated or deflated come down to the same thing. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same. They're both the results of being overinflated. The person with the superiority complex is overinflated and he's in danger of being deflated, but the person with the inferiority complex is deflated already. Someone with an inferiority complex will tell you they hate themselves. They're deflated. But to be deflated, hear this, means you were previously inflated. See, if you, if you say, I hate myself because I'm so ugly. See, if you really hated yourself, you would be glad you were ugly. Right? But no, it's because you previously had a view of yourself or a desire to be something that, that you're not. And you're upset because we don't have that. So to be deflated means you were previously inflated, either in reality or in your mind. Deflated or in imminent danger of being deflated, it's all the same thing and it makes pride fragile. Wouldn't you like to be able to go by a mirror and not admire and yet also not be repulsed? Yet in the words of that great theologian, Carly Simon, you're so vain and you probably think this sermon's about you. Because you've been crying out, look at me your whole life. But the Bible shows you to you, and the Bible shows me to me, but we don't like what we see. We want to be seen, but we don't want to look at what we really are. How great would it be to be able to be free from pride and what other people think about me or even what I think about myself? Is that even possible? Secondly, in your outline, then, there's how we naturally view ourselves, but there's how we should view ourselves. And in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, Paul reminds the Corinthians that he's a minister. He has a responsibility to fulfill, but then he tells them what we see in verse 3. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Now, when he says judge there, it's the word, it's, it means verdict. And Paul is saying he does not look to the Corinthians or any human court for the verdict that he is somebody. He does not care what they think about him or what anybody else thinks about him. In fact, his identity owes nothing to what people say. It's as if he's saying, I don't care what you think and I don't care what anybody thinks. His self-worth, his self-regard, his identity is not tied in any way to their verdict and evaluation of him. So Paul's identity may not be tied to other people's opinion of him. But how do we reach the point where we're not controlled by what people Think of think of us. How do we get there? Now, most people would say, well, the answer is obvious. Most counselors would say that it shouldn't matter to us what people think of us. And then they would <clears throat> tell us we shouldn't live according to what other people 
It should not be their demands that count. It should not matter what they think about us. The only thing that should concern me is what I think about me. It's not about other people's standards. I should only care about what I think my standards should be. I should choose my own standards. And so the counselor's advice is decide what you want to be and then be it because it only matters what you think about yourself. If someone has a problem with low self-esteem, then we seem to have only one way of dealing with it, namely get high self-esteem. We tell the person they need to see what a great and wonderful person they really are. Look at all the great things you've accomplished. Stop worrying about what other people say. Set your own standards, accomplish them, and then evaluate yourself. But the biblical approach could not be more different. While Paul cares very little whether he's judged by the Corinthians or any human court, he goes further and he says he will not even judge himself. Look at the end of verse 3. I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So I don't care what you think, but I also don't care what I think. Paul's saying, I have a low opinion of your view of me, and I have a low opinion of my view of me. And what would Paul say to those who say he should set his own standards? Paul would say that's a trap. I can't live up to my parents' standards, and so that makes me feel terrible. I can't live up to your standards, so that makes me feel terrible. I can't live up to society's standards. That makes me feel terrible. I can't live up to other society's standards. That makes me feel terrible. And I can't live up to my own standards unless, of course, I create incredibly low standards for myself, which makes me feel terrible as well because I've created low standards for myself. So trying to boost our self-esteem by trying to live up to our own standards or somebody else's is a trap. It's not the answer. And so the answer is not from others. It's not even from himself. So what is it? Now, remember, Paul was a man of incredible uh, stature. A man of incredible stature. He was one of the handful most influential people in human history. And yet he said this about himself. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now how can he do that? How can he say he's one of the worst people? We're not used to that kind of evaluation We're not used to people saying that if, in fact, they are people of great accomplishment like Paul, especially. But Paul can do it because though he knows about his sin, now hear this, he does not connect it to himself and his identity. His sins and his identity are not connected. He does allow, he does not allow sin to destroy his identity and he does not allow accomplishment to define his identity. Paul has come to a place where he's not thinking about himself anymore. When he does something wrong or he does something good, he does not connect it to his identity of himself. Again, C.S. Lewis said this. If we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling there are nobody. Such a person is self-obsessed. Even while they're telling you there are nobody, they're obsessed on themselves, right? Rather, the thing we would remember is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. You see, friends, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. 
And so I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. We don't need to be self-hating or self-loving, but have gospel humility. Our ego, it should be like our toes. It just works, but doesn't draw attention to itself. So test this for yourself. How badly do you get upset when you face criticism? You know, it really, it really shouldn't bother you. You take it, you listen to it, you evaluate it, and then if you can do something with it, do that. But if you get really upset, who are they to tell me? You see, you're comparing yourself. You're getting your identity from how well you perform. Or what about losing? Can you truly be glad for the winner? So how we naturally view ourselves, and there's how we should view ourselves, but lastly in your outline, how do we change our view of ourselves? Verse 4, Paul says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Now the word for innocent is related to the word in your New Testament for justify. My conscience is clear, but that does not justify me. Nah, that's a Bible term, isn't it? Justify. And who is it that justifies, that is, declares who I am, declares me who I am before the bar of God's justice? It's God himself. So what Paul is looking for, what all of us are looking for, is an ultimate verdict That we're important and valuable. We look for that verdict every day in all the situations and in all the people who are around us. And that means, friends, that every single day we're on trial. Every day we're put in the courtroom. But Paul says he does not care what the Corinthians think of him or what any human court thinks. He's saying that the problem with our self-view, whether it's high or whether it's low, is that every single day we're in the courtroom. Every day we're on trial. And that's the way that everyone's identity works. In the courtroom, you have the prosecution and you have the defense. And everything we do is providing evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. Some days we feel like we're winning the trial. Other days we're losing it. But Paul says that he has found the secret. Hear this. The trial is over for him. The verdict has been rendered. It's finished. The ultimate verdict is in. Now, how can that be? Well, Paul puts it simply. He knows that what other people think cannot justify him. He knows that he can't justify himself. And so he says at the end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. You see, it's his opinion of me that counts. The question is, what is his opinion of me and of you? And that opinion given in the good news of the gospel is shaped by God the Father seeing you through the person and work of God the Son. So that now he renders a verdict upon you that says you are righteous before me and you are my, you're my child. And so do you realize, friends, that it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? An atheist might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They're a good person and they hope that eventually they'll get a verdict that confirms that they are such. 
Performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhists, too, performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. And I would add, in the false gospel that so many of us grew up with, it's still based on your performance. You know your performance is not good enough, so you refuse to look intensely at yourself because you don't like what you see. And as a result, unfortunately, we don't change as we should. You look superficially, but you only see what you need to to mask what's really wrong. You don't really change, but you try to change the way you're viewed by others by deflecting attention from your flaws. You want attention, but you only want the kind of attention that's comfortable for you. So you seek to control how you're viewed by others. That's the way many of us, most of us, have grown up. And all of it means, friends, that every day you're in the courtroom, every day you're on trial, and that's the problem. But Paul is saying this, in true Christianity, the verdict leads to the performance. It's not the performance that leads to the verdict. In true Christianity, the moment we believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God says this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, God the Father said that of God the Son when he walked the earth. But when you come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives his verdict on you, he justifies you. He declares it's just as if you had never sinned and he gives you the righteousness of Christ. Now you're attached to Jesus Christ. Now your identity is in Jesus Christ. And now we are God's child. And because he sees us through Jesus, well-pleasing to him. What a beautiful, good news message. What I'm saying to you, friends, and saying to myself, is that ought to have effects on us every day. That ought to have effects on how we view ourselves. How we accept criticism. How we interact with people. We're not comparing and contrasting ourselves with other people because the verdict isn't based on that. It's based upon my identity in Jesus. So how do you get that? You come to Jesus. You have applied to you the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done on your behalf so that the verdict that's rendered about you is based strictly upon him and what he did for you. And so you do what Paul did. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ has done the work that you couldn't do. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you deserve. He died that death on the cross. God the Father raised him from the dead, showing that that death was an acceptable sacrifice, an atonement for your sin and for my sin. And you receive Jesus Christ. And the moment you believe that, you believe in who Jesus is and what he has done, you give your life to him. God now places his verdict upon you. You have the perfect righteousness of the perfect Son of God applied to you. And now you should see every bit of your life in light of that identity. So here's your take-home truth. We're not called to think less of ourselves. We are called to think of ourselves less. Let's bow together. Our Father, thank you for meeting with us. 
Thank you for the joy of this day, the opportunity to sing praise to you. For the events that surround this season, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, having become man on our behalf. We thank you especially for the opportunity to consider your word and what your word says about your verdict upon us and how that should transform the way we see ourselves and the way we see other people. Lord, I pray that I will take this to heart, that all of us will take this to heart, that it will that will bring some of us out of the funk that we are in, the malaise with which we live. We're not looking at ourselves accurately. We're not looking at ourselves from the perspective that you say we should from your word. Lord, I pray that we'll be people that see the beauty of the gospel as well and desire to give it and see lives transformed as a result of it. I ask you in this sacred moment to draw some out of the world and worldly thinking to yourself. As a result of all of this, we will give you the praise and the honor for you alone deserve it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.